Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, on this holiday weekend, I wanted to revisit a talk from earlier this year with author Jhumpa Lahiri. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction back in 1999 for her short story collection, Interpreter of Maladies. It was a stunning debut from Lahiri, then age 32, that led to several more books, some of which you've probably read. The Namesake, Unaccustomed Earth, The Lowland. But on the heels of this international success, Lahiri decided to leave America for Rome in 2011. There, she started to learn Italian, immersing herself in the language finding refuge in this foreign city. After years of rigorous study, Lahiri published her first novel in Italian in 2018. The book, titled Whereabouts, has now been translated into English and is available wherever you do your reading. Told through a series of vignettes, it follows a woman in transit, moving about a city, sometimes in solitude, sometimes with friends, lovers. In turn, we move with her, step by step, around her house, museums, stores, bars, toggling back and forth between the past and present. After a year of lockdown, there's something at once therapeutic and devastating in reading this book. You feel less alone with the narrator, even while Lahiri creates this meditation on loneliness. Clearly, this piece was born 
out of this move to Europe that I mentioned, but to understand the power of the book and Lahiri's work, you have to understand where she comes from. Lahiri was born in London to Bengali parents. She moved to the U.S. at a young age, growing up in South Kingston, Rhode Island. Her parents, often traveling back to Calcutta, where most of her family remained. Lahiri once wrote, Bengali was my first language, what I spoke and heard at home. But the books of my childhood were in English, and their subjects were, for the most part, either English or American lives. I was aware of a feeling of trespassing. And so, in many ways, this move to Rome that I mentioned, with a husband, with children, was her way of reclaiming a sense of home and language. And it's these ideas of home, language, and family that made us want to represent this episode to you. As I said back when this episode aired in the spring, I was not fully debriefed on some recent events in Lahiri's life. You'll understand what I'm talking about within the next 10 minutes, but what you hear is how this actually played out between us. One person grappling in real time with loss, the other doing their damnedest to just show up and be present for a stranger. Together, I think we made it work. And I just want to thank Jhumpa Lahiri again for not only coming on this show, which I am eternally grateful for, but for sharing parts of her story and her family in a way I was only familiar with on the page. So wherever you are listening to this, at home, around loved ones, on a plane, on a walk, in a car, in transit after this long holiday weekend, I hope you and yours are safe and I thank you for being here. Now, this is Jhumpa Lahiri. Jhumpa Lahiri, thank you for being here. Pleasure. How are you holding up right now after this past year? I'm tired, but... Uh... <laughs> Which is, by the way, the the best way to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm tired. It's been long. It's been a lot longer than anybody expected. It's hard to really think that things are are okay when it's so deeply not okay in so many parts of the world, and 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 the the whole trajectory of this pandemic, in which you know some places are doing relatively better, some places are relatively worse, and for me. I've always been raised in a family in which reality was always spread out in various places and and that's certainly the case now as well with the with the addition of Italy in our lives and so it's just a lot to factor in on every day sort of where things stand with in these various parts of the world where we have friends we have loved ones you know What does that mean reality was spread out in different places well, just exactly that, you know, that 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 life was not contained in our immediate surroundings, right? That there were there were people in other parts of the world, you know, when I was a child, specifically in another part of the world, in India, in Calcutta, and that their lives, their circumstances, what was happening to them was of equal concern to us and 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 so if it wasn't enough that things were okay, where we were. And that's conditioned me from 
from the very beginning. You know, I've never been able to think of of any one reality, right? Or any one way of of being or any one place or any one language and so forth. Um, there's always been another another track. Maybe you're not physically in it, but it's there and it's it's moving alongside you. Mm. I wonder how that sense of self um, has bled into your writing and, and your approach to writing, because there's been a lot of conversation around uh, you learning a new language for this book. And, and I want to get into that, but I think you've kind of talked about that enough. I'm thinking now about your mother and you have this quote that I really like. And you said, my mother wrote poems occasionally. They were in Bengali and were published now and then in literary magazines in New England and Calcutta. She seemed proud of her efforts, but she did not call herself a poet. And growing up throughout childhood, you couldn't help but shake her sense of nostalgia for the home and the friends and the people she left behind. And I wonder what that sort of created in you as a kid, a kind of sense of place and time and home. Well, it certainly complicated things because my mother felt that home was not the home we lived in. You know, in her deepest heart, there was always another home uh, and, and sort of the principal home and the sense of being at home uh, had nothing to do with where we lived for, for so long. I mean, it took my parents several decades to feel grounded and at home and for the center of gravity to shift over to the United States. It strikes me that you bring up her her poems. Um, my mother passed away about three weeks ago. One of the things that uh, I did in recent days was uh, I, I took the very worn out manila folder in which she kept her poems and photocopies of poems that had pu been published and I put them all into a portfolio to protect them and to be able to study them, carefully read them, have them read to me. So many of them are about her other world, about her home and the, and the longing and the, and the reality of the distance. She would often read them to me and I wasn't able to understand fully their meaning because she, she had such a, an elevated uh, and refined Bengali, you know, I mean, she studied Bengali literature. She worked in the poetic register of that language, which is that I don't know. I, I just know the sort of the table language, the family language. And so it, it really is interesting that now she's gone and, and yet she's left us these poems that will could potentially take many, many years of my life to, to slowly understand. But I think there you have a case of translation, translation from the very beginning, sort of built into to my childhood and my upbringing and my relationship to my mother. And the fact that she too was always working in another language and she was writing in another language. So it is, it's, it's, it's just interesting to reflect now on what I went on to do and my own moving in into another language. Of course, I I didn't know that prior to um to right now. How have you managed? Well, I've never done this before. It's very hard, but we have no choice but to to somehow live through it and to survive it. Right? That's what it means. Survived by, and so that's our role now to survive her. It's very day by day. 
And after this year, this sort of cumulative effect of all that, I don't know, it just seems, um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm impressed that you're here. <laughs> well, work is good and distractions are good, you know, and, um, and so I'm here. And my mother is in all my books, you know, she's always been in all my books in some form or another, some iteration, some piece of her, an aspect. It's never fully her. It's always a little piece of her that I would pull out and then work upon, elaborate upon, embroider upon. It's never her, but it's always her. <laughs> and so I feel that, you know, in talking about the book, it's a way of being with her as well. Would she know that when reading? Maybe. I mean, sometimes she liked, she, she would recognize herself and she would be pleased by the portrait. And other times she would sort of chafe and say, that's not really me, <laughs> you know, but I think that's normal. I don't know. I haven't had, had my portrait painted ever, but that I've had my picture taken enough times to know that I have, you know, there are certain pictures of myself that I see. And I think, I think that's who I am. That seems to be me. And then there are other pictures where I, I don't feel that's me. And, you know, other people even say, other people will look at pictures of me and say, oh, that's not you. It's interesting. You know, it's interesting how we react to, to other people's representations of who we are. Can I show you a photo? Sure. <laughs> yeah, there she is. And my dad and me. So what's happening in this photo? This is 1970s? This is 1969. Yeah, around 1970s. It's 1969 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father was working that year at the Dewey Library at MIT. My mother and I had come at the end of the summer in August, or actually maybe a little bit later. So I, I think she took me to Calcutta that year while my father moved from London. We had been all living in London, and then he got this job in the U.S., and he came here to the United States. My mother took me to India for, for a few months to show me to her family, to her parents. Here I'm probably closer to three. In 1970, in August, we moved to Rhode Island, where my father now still lives. And so that's that picture. Probably one of their closest friends took it. In fact, a, a gentleman who's coming, this is very ironic that you showed me that photograph, uh, a gentleman with whom they were friendly in Cambridge in those days, he took that picture. And he's coming by pure chance. He, he lives in Chicago. When he received the news of my mother's death, he was speaking to my father. And in any case, it all came to... We, all, we, we realized there was this interesting confluence of, of events for whatever reason um, that both of them were going to be in New Jersey at the same time. So he and his wife and his daughter are coming over for tea this afternoon. Uh, I also did not know that. <laughs> well, how could you? How could you? When In Other Words came out a few years back, you said, I wanted to get rid of identity. I wanted to feel free. All of the last four books, from Interpreter of Maladies through Lowlands, the frame of reference were my parents. Does whereabouts follow as a piece that exists outside of that frame of reference? I think so. Yeah, I think, I think with the Italian project, I have been able to put myself more at the center. My guess is that's, a, that's an important step on my, my journey as an artist to be able to assume that central position because I have to. 
now my mother's gone, right? And my father is 90 years old. So, I mean, there's just a certain reality that sets in and I have children. So one has to kind of move through time, right? And, and understand these cycles um, and everybody's moment along the path. So, so I do think that whereabouts is, you know, it's written from a, a different center of emotional gravity, if you will. You know, one of your favorite films is Gene Dealman, I believe. And in talking about it, you said that it reminded you of an Edward Hopper painting in its depiction of loneliness and, and isolation. Mm. And you're smiling a little bit. So I think I'm right. Am I right about this? Yes. No, I'm just thinking back to the the film, such a powerful film. And, you know, I haven't seen it since the pandemic, for example, I just think it would be such an interesting thing to watch now. I, well, I think you probably lived it in the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I did. We all did. And I bring that up because all of our lives have been, for the most part, monotonous. And in talking about it, you said this thing that I just love. And you said, what the film is really grappling with is the passage of time and how we choose to occupy it. And so much of whereabouts in my reading is you kind of finding, I don't know, these moments of occupation at the center of the story, but in isolation. Well, relative isolation, right? Because she's not always technically alone. And in fact, in so many of these episodes, she's not alone. I mean, she, she feels alone often in, in the way that we all feel alone often, sometimes also at dinner parties in large groups in a crowded museum or wherever we are, we can feel alone and must feel alone. Which probably makes my retelling even more somber because you're right, you're, you're often around people in the book, but it almost feels even more alone than being alone. And there's something profoundly sad about that. Well, I think the first person also creates, I mean, this is the first full length project in the first person. You know, I mean, I've written stories from the first person. There's stories in Unaccustomed Earth. There's a cycle of stories from the first person that alternates. I've experimented with it before, but um, here is a, you know, a, a, a longer work, a, a novel short novel, but a novel nevertheless, in entirely in the first person. And so I think that also creates, you know, that cone of silence in a way, you know, just the, the point of view in and of itself is a kind of layer around what is happening because everything is, is filtered through her. And she's so observant. So, you know, there's also kind of a way in which she's registering what is happening around her, sometimes reacting, sometimes simply registering or not entirely. I mean, she's reactive in, in, in different ways. You know, sometimes she has a more extreme reaction to something. Sometimes it's more subtle. She does strike me as a predominantly passive participant in the proceedings. And I, and I, I wondered in thinking about different pieces of your work, but what I understand of you and your life, I'm curious, do you find yourself in your day-to-day -day more comfortable observing rather than participating? Absolutely. That's who I always was in the beginning. And that's very much what I remain as a writer 
was to be that quiet pebble on a table, you know, not taking up too much space, but there for good or for ill, you know, that's how I feel and that's who I am. And I know that that's what made me a writer, but that that also comes with a certain anguish, right? A certain desire for participation, for feeling that I'm living, that I'm living and not just watching, not just taking in. Have you always been aware of that anguish? Yes. I mean, I remember feeling it as a young girl, thinking other people were doing and speaking and performing and living essentially. And that I was, I was somehow sitting in the audience. It's part and parcel of my earliest memories. You know, I don't remember doing things. I remember seeing things. I remember hearing things. I remember watching things. I remember a lot of waiting in my life for things, other people, things to happen, things to come to pass. I think because of my own linguistic makeup, I was so reluctant to speak as a child. I was so apprehensive and and shy. That means just absorbing what other people are saying more often than, you know, more than speaking and 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 hearing your own voice. I wonder if that shyness is why when you wrote for the first time you did so with a writing partner in class as a kid. You said we would sit together, this friend and I, dreaming up characters and plots, taking turns writing sections of the story, passing the pages back and forth. Our handwriting was the only thing that separated us. The only way to determine... Which section was, was whose, I imagine I wrote something like that. That's exactly what you wrote. I always preferred rainy days to bright ones, so that we could stay indoors at recess, sit in the hallways and concentrate. I'm still that person, except I have some degree of of greater control in my life. I'm not a seven or eight or 10-year-old girl anymore. I have a little more say in how I organize my day, for example. I certainly have more resources in terms of feeling good, feeling comfortable. I mean, I think writing was, it represented many things in in that stage that, you know, I talk about in that piece. Um, It was the way to make a friend. It was very important for me to to be able to have one-on-one conversations. I was hopeless at at groups when I was a kid. I just couldn't handle myself. I didn't know what what to do, how to participate in that kind of more complex that shorthand that happens. We you know when there there's several, uh, but I could I could play tennis, you know, <laughs> with one person. Um, I couldn't play. I mean, literally, I couldn't play any kind of group sports and things like that. But metaphorically, I could play play a tennis game in terms of this writing, this back and forth. And, and so it was comforting, right? Because I did feel very alone as a child, deeply, deeply alone. And I was an only child until I was seven and a half years old. My sister was born. So those, those formative years, I was, I was alone and my family was alone. And my mother felt very alone. So there were these layers of aloneness, you know, layers of solitude, I think, that marked me and marked my early childhood. So the writing was a way to to step out of that, actually, even though writing is its own form of solitude. But that's what what drew me to it was a it, it was a way to open up to somebody else and to share thoughts in my head and to have communication and have to collaborate to to make something together. Not only is writing a act of solitude, but 
as we talked about, you are actively engaging with the idea of solitude in your work, which I have to say, reading in preparation for this after the last year we've had, it, it was sort of crushing. No, you know, what I was thinking is that I remember a year ago when the pandemic really settled in and we, we were all affected by it and everybody was so stunned by the the radical changes, right, that we were undergoing. And I remember in, in that moment thinking, this is all strangely familiar to me because my childhood was so, you know, deeply characterized by distance and by absence and by the inability to be in touch with people and to see people, you know, for, for whatever logistical, economic reasons. But this idea that of being grounded, of not being able to just hop on a plane and go when somebody fell ill, when somebody died, or for a happy occasion, um, for that matter, when someone was getting married or when someone was having a, a baby. And, it, it, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible growing up in the 1970s to a father who worked in a university library and had a very modest income. It just was not the way we lived. And even though we were very fortunate, you know, we did go back to Calcutta. They set aside the money. I mean, we know that there are so many immigrant groups who who never go back, who can't ever go back for a variety of reasons. But my parents were able to go back and they did go back. It wasn't at the level, the speed that we were used to moving back and forth until March of 2020, let's say. And so I do remember thinking consciously that in some sense, these emotions that have come up during the pandemic and that we've been thinking about, that we've been living through, that we've been grappling with, I have already lived a version of this. And I think anyone who grew up in similar circumstances can sort of tap into that in a way because it's just, it's just under the skin already. It's something you've been processing for a while. Exactly. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. 
an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. I found something curious in, in the book that reminded me of a story in Interpreter of Maladies called Sexy, which is that you, you describe these blink and you'll miss it love affairs so beautifully. And, and I wondered, these sort of brief exchanges that last sometimes a week in your stories or a weekend or three months, you return to them again and again. And I wonder why you think you do that. The short answer is nothing lasts. Even if it's meant to, we know there's always an end point. And I think that writers have been struggling with this fact, with this truth, with the pain of it from the very beginning. One of the things I've been doing during the pandemic has been um, translating with a friend of mine, translating the fourth book of Odes by Horace. And those Odes are steeped in sort of this awareness of the passage of time, right? And so we see from how long ago the writer has been isolating these moments and these relationships that don't last because they can't last whether they last for three days or three months or 33 years, you know, they do end or something about them ends inevitably. The recurring ephemerality of these exchanges between two people that start as strangers become intimate quickly and, and break apart. Do you write about these exchanges because in writing you make them last? They live on the page 
long after you're done writing it, long after I'm done reading it? Is it a way of prolonging that feeling that is so ephemeral? Well, I mean, I think I write about it because because characters are always having to confront loss on some level or other, you know? And, and I think my life in Rome and, and what I lo- love, what I treasure about Rome is that when I'm there, it, it does make me so acutely aware of the passage of time and the ephemeral quality of, of everything. And on the other hand, I look out my window and I see the Colosseum in the distance. You know, I mean, I see time preserved. I see history there physically still standing in some form. And that's the great contradiction of Rome. And then every time I cross the bridge, there's the Tiber flowing beneath me, rushing forward, that time that's rushing forward, that never stands still. And living in Rome and being in Rome, it's impossible to to not have a, an awareness of that. And it's the first place, it's the only place I've lived in which I have that awareness every single day. Just even the way, you know, our, our apartment, um, there's one sees a lot of sky. When one is looking at the sky all the time, every day, every night, at every hour, and then you notice, you know, you notice how it changes, you notice how the color changes, you notice the passage of time, literally. And for that simple reason, even if I'm just home all day on a Sunday and don't even go out, I'm still somehow connected to time in ways that make me think. And I think gives rise to a book like this that that's all about that awareness in some sense, as you say, because I, I think you're right. I think it is very much about sort of a study of the passage of time. This reminds me of something that happened to you about 10 years ago. You were on a sailboat in Italy. You're with your family and I think some family friends. None of you knew how to navigate the sailboat. In turn, you hired a man that you called Skipper. And as you all were about to set sail, he came to you and everyone sitting around and he delivered a a monologue. I wonder if you remember what he said. He said, the sea isn't your friend. And he said, you can't trust it as a friend. It doesn't love you. But then he said something like, if you, if you give yourself to it, we don't belong on the water. We're not meant to survive there. That's what he said. And you have to know that. Yeah. And you have to respect that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really like us. And yet we love it. Beautiful, beautiful words to hear at the beginning of a voyage. You know, he was describing the water. And yet as you were talking about the passage of time living in Rome, I couldn't help but think of that man's words playing in my ear. And in some ways, you kind of put that in all of your writing, which is, an uncertainty about whether we're supposed to be here, how the hell we're supposed to navigate through these waters of, of, of existence mm-hmm. and accepting that it is over in an instant. Do you see that in what I'm talking about? I see that every day. And I think that's, that's the unbearable fact of being and also what gives rise to so much, certainly for me, what gives rise to my, my work, my art. And I imagine for so many who have this impulse, uh, this need to create, to jot down, to note, to record, to remember, that's it. It's just, it's that panic of it's all slipping away. And yet we've spent so much time 
so much energy sort of trying to accumulate and so much energy trying to insist that I'm from this place, this is my home, this is my town, this is my city, this is my my life. I think one of the things I I came to realize when I was, again, with this Italian journey and sort of the idea of borrowing Italian, am I borrowing Italian? Can I use Italian? Is it, my, is it mine to use? Can I? Should I? May I? And all of these questions that started swirling around of, you know, oh, she's not writing in her language, she's writing in this other language. And it's and so this whole question of sort of what is language and who does it belong to anyway? How does one even belong to a language? What is the determining factor? What do you have to show to the language police <laughs> to say this is my language and not, you know, this is my yard and not the other person's yard. So the tree that fell on it is not my responsibility. You know, it's so what is that all about? But what I came to realize was that everything is borrowed. Nothing is ours. Life is borrowed. We're here for such a short time and we just, we pass through it and we borrow it all. We borrow the sky, we borrow the trees, we borrow people, things, and then we let go and we pass through and the world remains. Certainly, as I say this, you know, having just accompanied my mother until her final breath, I I see this now for the first time. I've truly lived through that final endpoint of a person. I had never seen a person die before. I've given birth. I've had children. I, I know what the front end of that experience, right? The moment that life comes into being. And now I've also witnessed the end point. But I think I was working through these things before. Obviously, I was writing these. I wrote this book years ago. But again, I mean, this book comes out of Rome and my experience in that city of, you know, just living and breathing there and and thinking, you know, just day in, day out about what it means to sort of be rushing, doing my things and doing my errands and crossing the bridge and crossing the Tiber and, and seeing this immediate life unfolding day after day. It's only nestled into this other life and other lives and the past and that deep awareness of, of death and life. Um, I think I've never felt as alive as I have in Rome. There's a sense of vitality that I have never felt anywhere else. And I think I feel that vitality because I'm, I'm so aware that I will not always be here. You know, I mean, and here I intellectually, I, I also know that I'm not immortal and that one day I'm not going to be around. But, but there, it's, there's a different relationship to that, that truth. When you said goodbye to her, you said you saw the end point. What did that look like? Well, from my point of view, it seemed very, very natural. And for a long time, I mean, my mother was was not doing very well for a while. And then she went into sort of a deeper decline. But but for a long time, I would look at the leaves on the trees and those leaves that for some reason clung onto the branch that didn't fall. They made me think of her. And I thought, she's just hanging on. But my mother, I keep thinking of her in all of these botanical ways now. She loved plants. She was an extraordinary gardener. She made things grow out of pots that really were quite extraordinary. And I think of her in that way. I think of her as a sort of a form of life, like a plant or flower, you know, that one day stops thriving. 
And so that's what it felt like to me, that she she had stopped thriving and that things were slowing down and shutting down. And, and when she stopped breathing, that's I just felt that sense of this flower is no longer has the life in it that made it fresh. I don't know. It just felt very, very natural that it was part of her life. What you're talking about, that transformation is, is change. And when you were in Rome, you had a psychotherapist that spoke to you in Italian. And she said, every change necessitates a betrayal. Well, I, I, don't, I don't feel betrayed right now, nor do I feel abandoned. And I think that's partly because my mother's passing was really quite an extraordinary event. And she was very paradoxically vital in her final days. Um, she was really in deep decline. And the doctors explained that, that she was dying, that she was going to die in a few days. And so we were, quote unquote, prepared. She was able to, I, I think when she realized that she was going to go, it was liberating in that she she returned to her her most vital self, her most aware and generous self. She, in miniature, sort of lived her whole life in a couple of days. It was moving um, because she was at home and she she just loved people always and she hated being alone and she hated the coronavirus and everything that resulted from it. And um, But in those final days, our house was full of people coming one by one to to spend a little time with her, to sit with her, to sing her a song, to read her a poem. She was saluting people on FaceTime and WhatsApp videos and in Calcutta. You know, she was giving things away. She was choosing things for us to wear. She chose what she wanted to wear. Um, she was giving away articles of clothing, sort of kissing items that, that she had worn and giving them to friends. I mean, in this very moving way, very powerful and very maternal way. I learned so much from her in those final days. I've been so afraid of my mother's death for pretty much my entire life. And especially as she aged and grew more frail and, you know, this idea of her sort of clinging to the branch and worrying, being afraid, being so afraid. And, and yet I wasn't afraid when she was dying because she was so alive and she kept transmitting her love and her generosity to, to me and to everybody around, everybody who was in the house, everybody who was calling. I felt incredibly protected by her and guided, which is an odd thing to say because she was so reduced and, you know, sort of like this 90 pound woman on her deathbed. And yet she was so vital so incredibly vital. And, and so it was like she went out in this blaze, you know, it was like it just, it was like watching a shooting star. That's exactly what it was like. I'm still processing that, right? I'm still processing the vitality that she was able to, to have in that final moment, which must be so terrifying, right? And I have no idea what she was really thinking or feeling. I, I can't possibly, and I won't know until and unless I'm in a similar situation. And if, if my end is, is like hers, right, it might not be. I might not have the awareness. But that's why I don't feel, I don't feel betrayed or abandoned. I thought very much about metamorphosis as she was dying. And it was a great consolation to me. This is also partly because 
well, I mean, I've been thinking about, about metamorphosis deeply for so long. And, and just this year, since January, I've embarked on a translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses with a colleague of mine here in the classics department. But we're going to add our version eventually to the mix. And that poem in which change is the subject, the hero, if you will, the driving character, the driving action. You know, when you read that poem, you see, you see how Ovid slows down the exact process of one form becoming another form, how that is articulated. And I think reflecting on, on Ovid and on that poem and on, on the individual moments of transformation that I've read, but that now that I'm translating, they're sort of in my circulatory system and, and, and on a completely different level. And I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about my mother undergoing a metamorphosis. I mean, I think it is literally what happens when we, when we die. And um, that metamorphosis, that physiological metamorphosis, then triggers a whole series of other metamorphoses now my family has metamorphosized in from from four people to three people. I'm changed. My father's changed. My sister's changed. We are changed. You know, I mean, that's that's what happens. And so you realize this idea of metamorphosis is is so vast and also so specific and so real and so painful, right? And and when you read Ovid, you see the physical pain of it almost of of the discomfort of of one of a of a hand becoming a branch, right? But I kept thinking about that in her final days and it gave me so much strength. And I kept saying the first line of the poem over and over in my head. I still do. Which is? In nova fert animus mutatas dicere formas corpora. Which is, well, the translation is... <laughs> Sort of, um, my mind is inclined or bent to to speak of bodies changed into altered forms, changed forms altered into new bodies. The way you're describing your mother's passing feels, in some form, a kind of liberation. And this reminds me, after college, you moved to Boston. You worked at a bookstore where you ran the cash register. And you formed a friendship with a woman who worked there whose father was a poet, and every now and then you would visit their home. And I wonder if you could describe that first experience of walking into his office and seeing what that looked like. Well, when I first met the Corbett's, Bill's office was on the parlor floor, second floor of their house. It was in the middle of this enormous double parlor. And there was his desk and all his bookcases on either side and, and art and um, his work, his writing, his reading. And I remember being so struck by, by that activity that was occupying the space and not just sort of tucked away in a corner behind a door, but right there, front and center. In the June 13th, 2011 issue of The New Yorker, you wrote... I saw that the work taking place on this desk was obliged to no one, connected to no institution, that this desk was an island, and that Bill worked on his own. Many people would experience that office and say, oh, it's a nice office. 
oh, it's interesting what he's doing. But what you pinpoint is that it's obliged to no one. And I, I get the sense that so much of the driving force of your writing is this desire to feel untethered. That's the ideal state for the writer is to to be able to write from one's own, purely one's own, you know, whatever is driving the the writing and not feel that one needs to tell other people's stories. Maybe one wants to tell other people's stories, but, you know, how much of it is a want and how much of it, it is a sense of of obligation, even if the obligation is coming from within yourself, even if it's not that someone's saying, will you, you know, write my story? And so I think, you know, to go back to this earlier question that came up about sort of my parents at the center of those four books, as opposed to who's now going to be at the center, I think that's critical. It's critical to move to the point where I don't feel that I have to speak for other people. Part of what drove me to write those early stories was a was that impulse that I had as a as a child as well to be able to speak for my parents to defend them to protect them to explain them in a world in which they weren't being completely understood or respected or heard so as a child there was a lot of that in me because I was I had access to both of the realities you know so I could I was constantly going back and forth and understanding and reading the re- reading the ways they were being read I was both their child and their protector always and so that's what I tried to do. And I think when I started to write, it was the first time I felt that I had an instrument, a voice, a way, a perception, a way of protecting them and, and explaining them through my stories about, largely about them and about their experiences. But it generated a kind of expectation or that obligation you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, not from them particularly, not from them personally, but I think once you begin to write about, say, Bengali immigrants, you know, then there's that, oh, aren't you going to write more stories about that? They, oh, and, you know, oh, my family is also, you know, that, that is what happened. And I think that can become problematic because one writes to be free. One writes to feel free. We're actually not free, but writing is a form of freedom. It's a way to, to feel for me to feel free, that's really important. And I think, I mean, what's interesting is in some of the stories I'm writing in Italian, some of the stories I'm writing now, I'm still looking quite closely at, at immigrant communities, people who come from outside, people who settle in Rome, people who become Roman, that idea of becoming from being one, one thing and becoming another thing. I think the writer has to feel completely untethered in order to then go back into life and back into all of the relationships that that have made one and nourished one and tormented one and and whatever whatever the relationship is whatever the nature of the relationship is we are all so deeply connected we are all such a network and at the same time so completely alone and i think it's 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 both and you recognize this again to think about my mother's last days you know her death was was another way for me to understand that sense of we are we are community we are people who want to be together who need to be together who connect who love who grieve who share who eat who laugh who sing together friendship was such an important part of her life 
She taught me what that was. She taught me the value of friendship until her dying day and still will continue to teach me from her example of what it means to make friendships. And at the same time, she was entirely alone. And I think that's the reality, that's the contradiction, one of them anyway, of, of this life, these lives we lead. And what I keep circling back to, I think, in, in all the books. You wrote a beautiful description of why you write in your book, in other words. And I thought, as we leave, you'd be open to reading some of that. Why do I write? To investigate the mystery of existence, to tolerate myself, to get closer to everything that is outside of me. If I want to understand what moves me, what confuses me, what pains me, everything that makes me react, in short, I have to put it into words. Writing is my only way of absorbing and organizing life. Otherwise, it would terrify me. It would upset me too much. What passes without being put into words, without being transformed and, in a certain sense, purified by the crucible of writing, has no meaning for me. Only words that endure seem real. They have a power, a value superior to us. Given that I try to decipher everything through writing, maybe writing in Italian is simply my way of learning the language in a more profound, more stimulating way. Ever since I was a child, I've belonged only to my words. I don't have a country, a specific culture. If I didn't write, if I didn't work with words, I wouldn't feel that I'm present on the earth. What does a word mean? And a life? In the end, it seems to me the same thing. Just as a word can have many dimensions, many nuances, great complexity, so too can a person, a life. Language is the mirror, the principal metaphor, because ultimately the meaning of a word, like that of a person, is boundless, ineffable. What did you think while reading that? I read it differently. I read it thinking about my mom. In what way? I recognized, finally, really fully took in her boundlessness. I think when, when people are living, you see them, you, you sort of see them in the moment. I know this from having children. It's like my kids are just, they're who they are right now in this today. And then sometimes I look when I'm, my screensaver goes off on my computer and I see all the photographs of them from this year and that year and they're little and they're like this and they look like that. And they, you know, and I realized they were also all of those things. They were those, all of those people too. But I can't really take it in because you are in the moment. You have to live in the moment, right? You have to sort of acknowledge who, who another person is and who you are in this moment now. But you were also who you were three days ago and three years ago and 13 years ago, as was I. Those people are also part of this conversation. But it's just, it's overwhelming to think about that in this moment. And I'm just talking about my children, whom I have literally seen grow up. But then think about all of the relationships we have with people whose pasts we don't know. But we also have to understand that there, there's like a, there's a chorus <laughs> that every person brings to the stage, right? Every person is both kind of a solo actor and a chorus at the same time, a chorus of selves. It's really rare. There are rare moments when you can really sort of step back and see 
that idea of the chorus of people. And that was one of the things a, a very close friend of mine told me when I told her about my mom. She said, one of the things that's going to happen now is that you're not going to just see her in her body and her frailty in the immediate moment of now. You know, when, when she leaves her body, this array of mothers is going to accompany you, not just the final one, not just the final incarnation, but also the one who enthusiastically pushed you and your pram all over London in 1968. She's also going to be there. And, and all of these other memories you have of her, or don't. I mean, I don't remember my mother pushing me in a pram in 1968, but she did. And I can imagine it. You said you started writing to feel free. And I wondered, after reading that passage, at this age, at 53, do you feel that freedom you've been looking for in writing? I mean, I think, I think you know, there's a sort of working toward the idea of freedom, as I said. I don't think we're ever fully free, you know, but writing creates, a, for me, a, a state of mind in which I, I would like to think that I am free. But I don't think we're ever fully, fully free. No, life's too complicated. And I love life too much. And I love people too much, the people in my life too much, you know, to, to really be able to divorce myself, to, to cut myself off from it to that degree. I'm thinking about now all those versions of your mother you're talking about and all the versions of yourself that you share on this show. That's meant a whole lot to me. And thank you for all the writing over the years. We are all alone, but page by page, I have felt just a little less lonely because of you. Thank you so much. It was a very powerful conversation and uh, I haven't really talked about about any of this um, with someone I just met. So um, I hope it was all right. I've talked about my parents plenty of times on on stage and in front of audiences. And in my writing, it's always been out of a place of love and admiration. And so I hope this was as well. Jimbala Harry, thank you very much. Thank you. our show. If you enjoyed today's talk and want to get a copy of Whereabouts, it's available to purchase wherever you do your reading. You can find links and learn more about Jimpa's work in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There you'll also find our back catalog, including talks with writers like George Saunders, Elizabeth Gilbert, Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Roxanne Gay, Michael Lewis, and Fran Leibowitz. To hear those and find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash 
shop. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andre Lin. Illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Music by Dylan Peck. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Michael Tubbs. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.